This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. Hey everyone, a couple housekeeping things real quick first. Make sure that you're subscribed on podcast or on Google Play. That's really important so you're up to date with when we have a new release like this one. Also, have an email address to share with you if you want to get in touch off social media. The email address is andrew at koshersom.com, kosher, S-O-M-M.com. Uh, and that's the way to reach me through email. So this episode, I actually wanted to release it later, but I liked it so much, I decided to bump it up in the order. Um, in this episode, we get to know a winemaker whose name in kosher circles is gaining recognition, but he's already quite recognized in the broader wine world. Josh Clapper founded Tambor Winery, formerly known as La Fenetra, focusing on Burgundian varietals in the Central Coast. We hear about his career as an award-winning sommelier who earned himself a Wine Spectator Grand Award, how he transitioned to winemaking, his involvement with kosher wine. Uh, Josh also will share his insider tips for learning how to truly taste and evaluate wine, and do not miss his surprising secret for success in the wine industry. This is a great, great time. Josh is an amazing guy, and I'm really hoping that you guys are gonna enjoy this. Okay, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure to see you again. That's so nice of you to say that. Um, we are in your office <laughs> here in Santa Maria, uh, hiding from the uh, barrels presently. And um, uh, what I wanted to... You can just drop that. That's cool. Bam. Sound effects. <laughs> yeah, right. We're pretty casual about that kind of stuff. Um, what I wanted to do is just basically... You wanted to introduce yourself to the listenership, your background, and how you kind of came from what you were doing to becoming a fantastic winemaker expert. Right. So, what was your first involvement in the wine industry? Or your what, what was pushing you to like think about all the things you could do, I want to do wine? Um... The, my first, I mean, my first exposure to wine was when I was a kid, and uh, like on Shabbat with my dad, <laughs> obviously. Um, I think that's most, you know, uh, right? That's most Jewish yeah, kids' first exposure to wine. It's you, know? you call it wine. Not not everyone had the expression, the uh, exposure to table wine. But right, just right. Like, yeah, no, definitely. It was definitely table wines they weren't it, we didn't like drink manischewitz in the house like that's not my dad always had like dry decent stuff from somewhere we all know. yeah we always had carmel or manischewitz right, right yeah. yeah never that never was i mean i think it was probably at like you know satyrs when we went to other people's houses sure you know, but but no we never we never had that um but it what they weren't very good like even now, like, I'll, I'll smell a wine and be like, oh, yeah, that smells like a wine that my dad would have drunk back in, like, 1987 or something like that. That's funny. Okay. Um, but um, that was my first exposure to wine, and I didn't really take, you know, it wasn't, like, a serious beverage. Obviously, when you're seven, eight, nine years old, you, it, anyway, 
but as a teenager I was not interested like these were not wines that spoke to me um, my first real experience with wine as someone who then started to care about it was um, in my late teens when I was uh, I think it was 18 or 19 and I started working for uh, I started working in restaurants after high school and um, I worked at uh, one of Danielle Boulud's restaurants in New York he's a famous French-American chef sure. and uh, there were wine seminars and so I you know as a as a server at that restaurant um, I had to start you know tasting wine so that we could at least recommend stuff by the glass like we weren't going deep into the list but you know just just know some stuff about yeah, some yeah just to be fluent with what exactly, the offerings were exactly exactly and so I started tasting wines I was like oh this is like kind of cool like I, there's certain things that I liked I liked Riesling right off the bat that's a really easy one to like um, especially like really good Riesling with that has a little bit of residual sugar a little bit of acidity you know it's, it's nice um, and then uh, just some other varieties um, but uh, you know I the first you know it's like you, I would taste Syrah and be like oh this is good I like this or you know something like that um, and that gradually you know gradually I started to know the varieties and was there, was there stuff that you just didn't like I wouldn't say there was stuff that I didn't like. At that point, I was pretty open to trying to understand the wines. So it's not like I was tasting with a distributor and deciding what we were going to buy. I wasn't tasting uncurated wine, sure. if that makes sense. Right. Everything I was tasting was like chosen for the list by a sommelier who was extremely talented and knew good wine. So I was, we were, I was already tasting wine that had been, you know, that had been chosen. Right. Um, and so there was nothing bad. And I was always like learning, I was learning about food and wine pairings. So like, maybe, maybe I don't love this wine specifically, but I see where it, where it fits in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things and it works. Right, um, even and, if yeah. you didn't have a specific taste, it had a purpose. Right, and, and I don't think I also had the level of understanding to form an opinion like, I don't like this because, right. I don't have a problem with that now. <laughs> like now it's like we're just pretty easy we're just tasting outside you're like no that's terrible or no thank yeah. you or right. I, will I will never try that I, that's not going to my mouth a second time <laughs> <laughs> well evolution there yeah 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 that's funny it's okay. funny when there's something that's so bad that you have to taste it again you're like I, I that couldn't have been as bad as i thought you just you know like, wow that was really as bad as i thought it was <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. So then working in the, in the restaurant. Yeah. So I, I worked in restaurants for years and um, I worked at, at that restaurant for, I think, three years um, until I moved to California. And um, over that time, I went from like a back server to a front server and a bartender. And I did a lot of things. I, and I gained quite a bit of knowledge. We did weekly seminars and just learning new things. It was a it was an international wine list. So I learned about California. I learned about France. A little bit about Italy, a little bit about other places, and then when I moved to LA, um, the sous chef from that restaurant that I'd worked in New York was moving to LA and working with a friend of his who had also worked for Danielle like years ago, mm -hmm. and I ended up working at that restaurant. And um, I was 21 or 22 when I started that job. And uh, which restaurant was that? I think it was called Sona. It was in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, these are not kosher restaurants, and, and Sona doesn't even exist anymore. But um, within about six months, they had seen that I had a lot of... Um, I was from New York, so I had a little more um, uh, 
polish and skill than the people who were LA servers because most of the servers in LA are just actors waiting for the next gig right. whereas I had been working in New York in a restaurant a serious restaurant at a super high level for right, like three right, years right. right so even though I was young I still had a lot of experience um, and so and they saw that I had an interest in wine I actually had some training so they saw that I had about as much understanding as the GM and so they made me the co-wine director with one of the owners who didn't really have any ex- a lot of experience, but I wasn't going to be the wine director at the the sole wine director at 22 <laughs> years old, you know. Um, and so, I, but I started buying the wines for the restaurant, and so I was tasting weekly, um, multiple times weekly with reps and distributors, and that's when I started like, you know, I was crafting this list that was, you know, they wanted to go from like a hundred labels, which they started with with a consultant. We wanted to bring it to like 400 or 500. Like their initial goal was to get a best of award of excellence from Spectator. Wow, it's like a distributor feeding frenzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I t- started tasting. And, it, you know, it's like when you're buying, you if you with, without even trying, you can taste 100 wines a week. And I was probably tasting like more like 200 wines a week. Because in addition to buying, I was working on the floor. People were bringing in wines. I was tasting all those. So I'd be tasting 20 or 30 wines every night. Um, in addition to tasting, you know, 20 or 30 wines, you know, if I saw five reps in a day and they show me six wines, that's 30 wines, you know, and I do that three days a week. And so I'd be tasting, you know, 100, 150 wines a week. And within about six months, um, I was pretty well versed, you know, you, you kind of learn quickly. I was also reading a book and, and, um, and doing some, you know, some other stuff. Um, but you know, I, I'd always gravitated toward food and wine it's clear that I had like, it wasn't clear to me, but it's clear to me now that I clear I have a more sensitive uh, palate than the rest of the world. I'm not saying I'm a super taster, but I definitely have an affinity for, sure. you know, developing that part of my brain, and I had some innate talent, you know. Um, so that's yeah. pretty rigorous, like tasting, you know, like thirty plus wines a day. Yeah, I mean, I it mean, can not be for one, sure. not in one setting, but right. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely can be. Um, I was, like, I was excited by it, though. So I was just like... It's a tremendous challenge. Do it, yeah. I, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And, um, and as a young guy, it's like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the only thing I should have taken advantage of is, like, all these distributors offered, like, trips and stuff, and I was, like, too cool for that. Right. And it's like... And now, if someone was like, if you buy 10 cases, I'll take you to Portugal, I'd be like, do I need to buy 20? I'll take 20. Like, <laughs> Let's go to Portugal, man. Let's go. Do, I, do my kids have to come or can I come by myself? <laughs> but, yeah. And then, uh, after we got the Best of Award of Excellence, they decided they want to go for a Grand Award a couple of years later. And that was, like, maybe 2014. This is the Wine Spectator. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, at that point, when we wanted to go to, like, over they wanted to go to like 3,000 labels we had like let's say 500 at the time um, that's when they hired on the second guy because there's really not a lot of grand award lists with just one psalm anyway and I didn't have the um, that takes a lot of knowledge and experience to curate that kind of list sure um, I realize you- now that it's not really curated it's just you buy everything <laughs> like which do you want to buy this? You're like, yeah, I want to buy that. Like three thousand bottles. Yeah. Of like, but it's like you have like twenty vintages of like Chateau Latour, and like okay, you know, yeah. it's like it's a very it's just you spend a lot of money, right. um, but you buy every vintage of every great wine. You go you, you go deep instead of going wide. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I remember like one time we got the the uh, the 
sales book from like Fine and Rare Wine in London, which is like an auction house sure. and distributor, and they do a lot of things and exporter importer or whatever. And we just like took a highlighter and highlighted like the entire book, gave it to the investor, and was like, "Get us all this." <laughs> it was like, "We'll take this whole page and this whole page and this whole page and this whole page." Really, do we need 17 minutes of Chateau Cam? Yeah, we do. <laughs> Will we ever sell it? No, that's not what you asked us to do. You asked us to build a grand word list. You know, it's, it's you know. See, so. people walk into a restaurant like that and be like, yeah, "I'll take the uh, you know 1947." Unfortunately, no. That's why the restaurant closed. Because, you know, like, we built that list in the mid-2000s, like, 2005, six, seven, right. you know, whatever, and the market crashed in 08, and they just couldn't support that list, and already the writing was on the wall, those kind of restaurants that were super expensive, they just, there's not that many of them now. Sure. You know, it's it went to more, like, bistro-y kind of deal. So the restaurant, unfortunately, closed in 2010, I left in 08 to pursue other things, you know, making wine full time. So you but, went from the restaurant, so let's just take back to see. Right. And then you're like, okay, I've reached the climax of being a restaurant sommelier, at least where you want to, where you Essentially, yeah, I, I'd reached the climax of being a, someone working in a restaurant. Like, right. I couldn't deal with that anymore. And so I was, I had always been looking for a transition. So I ended up fil- finishing my college education. So I started in restaurants when I was 18. I went back to school when I was 20. But I, I had a full restaurant career while I was going to school. Sure. And then when I was 26, I graduated, but uh, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to school for business, and I didn't know that there was a path in wine, you know, besides being a psalm that I could actually take. Right. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a teacher. Like, I I didn't, like, there's not a lot of young Jewish kids that are like, you should make wine. Like, that's not. (laughs) So in 2000, late 2005, I bought some juice, made some blends, and started selling them in early 2006 in the restaurant. And um, I also bought some fruit with a winemaker friend of mine. And so um, in two, early 2006, late 2005, I released some blends of 2004 juice that I had bought. And I had some wine in barrel that was, you know, going, you know, aging away. Right. And I sold a, a car that I'd paid off for 10 grand to, uh, to fund this, borrowed 10,000 bucks from family and made 10 barrels of wine. That's how I started. And so initially when we made the wine, it was going to be called the Monogram. We had this cool name, this cool idea that I was just going to be buying juice and putting the initials of the winemaker on the bottle, on the monogram. And uh, within like, um, I don't know, like 15 minutes of announcing this name, we hadn't printed labels yet, which was great. <laughs> I got a cease and desist <laughs> from uh, from a winery in Oregon that had a wine called the monogram. That's funny. Um, yeah. How did that even happen? I put out an email to like everyone I knew saying we're gonna be making this wine, you know, stay tuned. Right. I wanted a pre-sell, and uh, so it got to like someone who was like, "Oh, the monogram!" Like, they probably called the winers like, "Someone's doing this," or whatever. I don't know. Maybe went to a rep or something like that. Right, I'm yeah. sure there were all the reps I had. Every business card I had was on that email. Sure. And so uh, it was pretty pretty swift. Right. Um, but uh, ultimately, like that took this the wind out of the sails of buying juice and creating blends and so I was like what am I gonna do like I don't know and so I um, in 2006 I, I worked a harvest and I fell in love with the process and just kept working harvests and wow. learning more you know taking over more parts of the winemaking because I was working with a winemaker originally mm-hmm. and by 2008 I, I did like 50 tons solo and never looked back so how many cases was that I mean, it was 30 tons solo. I don't remember. Thirty a, a ton is like 60 cases, so 
what's 30 mm -hmm. times 60, 1,800 cases, 2,000 cases. So something. you went straight into, like, Pinot Chardonnay? Yeah, I always wanted to make, you know, I love Burgundy, as, you know, as all sommeliers do. do. I mean, so I worked with two great kind of, lo, you know, low alcohol, low intervention winemakers, and then... Um, now I'm I'm playing around with some other stuff. So I started making Cabernet a couple of years ago, and I've been a few years ago thinking about that and and what that means in California. Um, but um, you know, a lot of it is like you know we're just fermenting, right? But uh, the way we think about it changes. So it's all about slight slight changes and slight variations of what you do having big impacts over a couple of years. And uh, philosophically, how you feel about it. Is it just <laughs> trial and error, or just like you taste something, and, and when you taste it years later, you're like, well, this tastes like it could have been done differently, or... Yeah, yeah. In the wine business, sometimes those, those the trial and error, it takes years to find out you did something wrong. So, like, I definitely had, like, what I consider, like, my dark period, <laughs> you know, which was, like, 2012, 13, and 14, you know, um... And the wines are good, but I know they could have been better, you know? It's that regret that makes I just, it Yeah, it's like, I, yeah, it's like, the wines are fine. They're delicious. People buy them. They're being poured in restaurants right now. But it's like, I'm just like, oh, they could have been 5% better. Wow. You know? And that's still, like, bugging you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it'll bug me forever. <laughs> like, in 2009, I know the mistakes I made, you know? And so it's like, those mistakes bug me, but, like, you learn, right? That's, that's the whole point. So I guess if I was going to ask you, like, what's your, what would you say is a secret for success in the wine business? You would say, wow. um, like, constant improvement. I'm not answering it for you, but I'm saying. Yeah, what's what's the secret of success? Because um, I would call you successful. I mean, I don't know. You're probably yeah, the harshest critic. I, I think we have, a, we have, look, there's a lot of metrics for success. You know, I get up every day, and most days I like my job. You know, <laughs> everybody hates their job some days, you know, but I like it most days. I love being my own boss and I love working with this product that allows me to do so many different things. Like I do sales, marketing, creative things. I drive a forklift. I, you know, I get to um, design labels. I do like all different really fun jobs. And I have ADD, so I need to have like a hundred different things to do for me to feel like if I do the same thing every day, I would not, I would not be able to survive. Um, I love the varied nature of it. I love creating something like everything we do is a hundred percent made in the USA, and we do most like we don't blow our own glass bottles, you know, and right. and carve our own corks. But this is a product that we make from start to finish. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, but. Uh, uh, what was the original question? <laughs> What's the secret to success? Back to the ADD. Yeah, secret to success. I, you know, I don't know. I think the secret to success is being able to sell what you make. Like, it's really easy to spend money and make something. Sure. It's, it's not easy, I should say. But if you have money and time and want to learn how to do it, you can do that. Um, but ultimately, if it doesn't sell, you can't keep doing it. I mean, uh, I, you know the secret. Is, I, I know the secret to success is in the wine business. He's <laughs> actually believing every day that you can be in the wine business. <laughs> that's that's what it is. That's you funny. Know, that's really you funny. Gotta, you got to believe in it. But it's true. I mean, like if you if you feel like you know every day you wake up, like oh, I'm just gonna try it for one more day. Yeah, and see what yeah, happens. Yeah. Like exactly. I'm like I'm just like super about, positive. Yeah, talk about a dark period. I mean, yeah. like that would just never end. Yeah. Like, so it's like I don't know. It's like I'm the kind of guy I go out for a sales day, and I'm like, I'm at eight in the morning. I'm getting ready for sales. And I'm like, I'm gonna sell fifty cases of wine today, 
the end of the day, like, I didn't sell anything and I poured out eight bottles, you know? <laughs> the next day, I can get up and still be like, I'm going to sell 50 cases of wine today. Like, and I don't know where that optimism comes from, you know? Um, that is pretty just, intense optimism, though. Yeah, I mean, I that's not, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. Most people don't carry that. Right, right. But then there might be someone else who, even though they're not optimistic, they have some other belief that keeps them in the wine business. Because I know a lot of winemakers that are negative Nellies. You know, but they're still able to do it. And maybe it's because they're super artistic and, and, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm artistic, but I'm also optimistic. Right. Right. If I was negative, I don't think I could make wine. I I don't think I'd be able to do it. Um, but some people are just like, there's, they, they love honing the craft, you know? And for me, I love making great wine and watching it age and tasting it. But I also love running a small business and making that successful. That's like super rewarding for me too. Right. So... That's awesome. Yeah. What, um, so as a, as a restaurant sommelier turned winemaker, you have to, you've done like an incredible amount of tasting, which you basically self-taught for the most part. Right. Right. Um, how should someone today who wants to learn about wine go about learning how to taste and still keeping an open mind? In this, like, when there's so much, I guess, like, still keeping an open mind, like, you, that's a big qualifier. What does that mean? I guess, I guess, like, the reason I'm saying that is because if you, there's so much information out there, right? And you read like a tasting note, right? And you're like, okay, well, it's gonna taste like this, and then you taste, right? It. Like, how do you like learn about wine, taste what? So you So the taste. way the way I taught myself was the owner of that restaurant, Sona. I already had a little bit of experience, right, in New York, so I had some tasting experience. I, she gave me a, uh, a book called Jancis Robinson's Wine Course. Sure. And it was based off of like a TV series that Jancis Robinson did like maybe in the 80s or something or 90s in right. Britain or something like that. And it is an awesome book. And if you just start on page one and start reading, like that's how I would teach my kids like how to do wine. Like read this book. Right. Read the first chapter. And I don't even remember what it was. I still have the book, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. But the first thing it does is it teaches you how to taste wine. And it does so, and there's not a lot of opinion. It's 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 really, um, this is how to taste wine like a professional and what you're looking for. But it doesn't tell you what it should be. Like, it's like, look at the alcohol. Like, or t- taste, you know, it's like, smell it. Do you like the smells? Do you not like the smells? What does it smell like? Does it smell like lemons and limes? Does it smell like cherries and chocolate? Does it smell like, you know, balsamic vinegar? Does it smell like, you know? And, it and you know, tasting wine is not, you know, tasting wine professionally is not opinion-based. If you're buying and curating for a list, then you have to have an opinion. Sure. And, and, a, and a goal, right? But if you're just tasting wine academically, there's no opinion. Wine tasting is factually based. Like, there are things that wine smells like and things that it doesn't smell like. And so it's funny, like, when people are tasting with me and if a wine smells like, you know, it's like if we're smelling um, Sauvignon Blanc and someone's like, this smells like tobacco, I'm just like, and they say, do you smell that? I would say, we all have different palates, you know, because <laughs> I want to be nice. Maybe I want to still sell them some wine or something, you know, but in truth... Sauvignon Blanc doesn't smell like tobacco. Maybe it smells like a green tobacco leaf or something like that. But how many people have smelled a green tobacco leaf and actually know what that smells like? Right. You know, we're talking about like it either, you know, these are facts. 
they're chemicals, and there's chemicals in the wine that make it smell like a certain thing, right? Right. And so that's not opinion-based. So you can taste someone, taste professionally, without having an opinion, right? And then, so then, then at the end, you'd ask, well, do you like it or do you not like it? But that's the last step, you know? Sure. Um, and so I just read this book, and then it goes through, like, different regions, or maybe it starts with varieties, and then regions of the world, because you know, different grapes grow in different regions. You know, it's it's like any product. You can't necessarily grow apples in Alaska. Right. And you probably can't, You maybe you can't grow apples in Hawaii either. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a range for everything. So Pinot Noir grows in some places. Cabernet grows well in some places. And so um, it goes through all those things. Then it goes to different countries and the major varieties. And it's, it's just a great book. It's actually a good read. Um, if you're interested in the subject, so that's that's how I did it. You know, like, that's a great that's a great like way of explaining that you're when you're tasting like you're just trying to figure out like what you're experiencing, right, right. And then once you have enough data in your mind, then you can start saying, well, you know, I guess you can like something or dislike it right off the bat, right. But it'll take a lot more tasting to then say, well, I don't like it because right of this. But another friend of mine. So if you're if you're trying to learn specifically how to taste wine, right? Um, he had a really great suggestion. He's a sommelier, and he goes. He still does this. His name is Raj Parr. He's like super famous in the wine world. Oh yeah. Um, Rajat Parr. Is that Michael Dana's uh, restaurant? He used to be. I don't know if he still is. He's probably related in some way to some of them doing some consulting. I don't know what he's. He has a few wine brands now, but he said like he'll go to farmers markets wherever he is. Like he'll go to farmers markets and he'll just start picking up stuff and smelling it sure so you want to know what like you know turmeric smells like versus like you know cumin versus like you know seven other things well go to the spice guy and start smelling the different spices right and you want to know what carrot leaves smell like or tomato leaves or beet leaves or beet greens or beets or potatoes or you know all these different aromas go and pick up those things and smell them you know and if you're do you know we all know what things smell like. So you walk into a house and someone's cooking like chicken soup, like for your listeners, right? You're gonna know. Oh man, they're, they're like they're, there's a pot of all soup on the stove right now. You know, that's a simple one, right? Or like someone's making a brisket or whatever. Um, you're going to be able to smell that, right? Because we know those aromas. Those are the the, the foods in our house, right? You just have to create that same that's, taste, yeah, smell, smell memory. Right. With like a hundred different things, but there's not like a thousand. There's only like a hundred. You know, it's, it's it's there's there's a science to it. Right. You know, you don't need to know what, you know, you know. It's like muscle memory for your. Yeah, kids. exactly. Sure. And so, you know, if someone really wants to learn about wine, it's like learn how to taste professionally. If there's like a ten-step process, I don't even know what it is, but you probably can. You can put a link to like some kind of like 10 step process for tasting wines like a professional. Right. And the moment you start thinking about it and doing this process, you're you're going to start mem- remembering flavors and, and aromas. It's just what happens. You know, right. as soon as you put some intention into doing it, anyone can do it. Do you recommend blind tasting for in the beginning? Or Absolutely. I think I think it's key to be blind tasting. But I would choose the right wines. So that's the biggest issue I see in the world of wine and people peddling themselves as professionals is they're talking about wines that have no sense of, um, I don't know if this is a real word, typicity. 
Sure. Right? So but many people use the word like varietal correctly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So if you're like you shouldn't be blind tasting Manischewitz, you know? <laughs> like that's not a thing. <laughs> if you're going to blind taste, you know, if you like you should be doing the categories that are important, you know? So like California Cabernet. California Zinfandel. California Syrah. Right. Red Bordeaux. White Bordeaux. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And within those, you also want to have typical versions. So if you're going to do California Cabernet, um, I would do like Herzog Passerables Cabernet. A wine that we all know tastes like varietally correct Cabernet. It's not too expensive. So right. say, oh, let's do Covenant, right? 100 bucks a bottle. Whatever it is, I don't, I don't know, you know? But um, for your kosher listeners, it's going to be, it, it may be a little more difficult to find wines with typicity, like, you know, finding like a reasonable red Bordeaux to be blind tasting with. So like, don't do a, don't do a blind tasting of like a Merlot from Mexico. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, or something. Yeah. Like, if Although, but like Chilean Merlot I would do or something like sure. that. Something that is actually a category, right. you know? Um not like a one-off. A one-off is not the yeah. exemplar for... Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And in the kosher market, that's a little tough because it, it may be hard to find like Chateauneuf de Pop or something like that. Something that's so classic. And There's so, one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> one. So I know of like a hundred different Chateauneufs that I could describe, you know, that I could be, that are non-kosher, right? They just don't exist. Um, but you, you definitely want to be doing something like, you can blind taste anything, of course, like, and you can pick out flavors in anything. But you want to have wines that are, that that are. If you're really trying to learn about wine and 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 international wine, and you know, you want to have you want to be tasting the the right stuff. If that makes so sense. So I guess the the process is that you read about wine, and then you train your nose to understand what the various flavors are, and then you use like the most typical wines of a region to establish like a baseline of where the wine. Right. Generally, should if you want to call it that. Yeah. So, like, if you're doing the thing is like if you're trying to figure out the flavors of Sauvignon Blanc, right? You you want to know that if you're if you're blind tasting three wines that day, let's say you're you know or or whatever, even one wine, it doesn't matter. You're going to start coming up with these flavors and aromas. You want to know that what you want to be able to confirm that. Okay. You know, so it's like this smells like you know, I don't know, cotton candy, right? And then, and then, but someone's like, no, there's no way that wine smells like cotton candy. You know, you want to be like focused in it, right? But I think just by learning how to taste, like doing that 10 step process where you're thinking of, you're looking at it, you're, you know, first you're looking at it and you're coming to some conclusions. Then you're smelling it and coming to conclusions. Then you're tasting it and coming to conclusions. And then, you know, you put all that together. Just the act of doing that with, with, you know, a couple wines a week, I think you'll get to the point where, you're already starting to recognize flavors and you know we should tell totally do that next time you're in town we'll do the uh ultimate kosher blind tasting challenge yeah yeah someone it's hard someone like josh Clapper. yeah i recently went to a friend's house for they had wanted to have a wine tasting party and i try not to go to those things because the wines are typically just you know disgusting like insipid <laughs> you know and this was no different the wines were insipid but <laughs> Um, I was really nervous because the wines were so bad it was hard to blind taste them and I was using like every trick in the trade like I was looking at the shape of the glass I was looking at the color of the glass like you could just see the top you know of the bottle outside of the paper bags uh-huh. um, which is part of blind tasting by the way it's like 
if you if you know about wine, you know a certain type of glass is bottled with certain wines. So sure. it's you know, um, which is kind of funny. So anyway, I ended up getting eight out of the ten wines right, but um, by a variety and region. It we knew I knew what the wines were, so uh-huh. they had a list of the ten wines. So single, and blind. you had to like yeah, it was single blind. Right. It wasn't double blind. There's no way I would have blind tasted these wines. They were just horrible. The only way to blind taste is to have wines that are typical. You know, you have to have like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that smells and tastes like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. The average one should, you know. Right. But um, it was really difficult. That's that's why I say that like if you really want to get into blind tasting and, and the art of that, then you have to have like wines that are difficult. Right. The goal can't be to like trick someone with like, you know. Right, 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 right. Like one off or something right. like that. That's right. pretty cool. So kosher wine became a thing for you, like kind of on and off a few years ago. Yeah. And uh, how's that journey been? Yeah. Well, we've made kosher wine every year since 2011. Um, and it's difficult for me, you know, being a non-Sabbath adhering Jew. Um, as a winemaker, if I'm wondering about something with a barrel of wine, I'm used to going to that barrel, popping it open, smelling, tasting, analyzing what I need to analyzing, and then doing something about it. Right. Um, for the first few years, I was working with uh, a local rabbi, Chaim Hillel, who's a saint. I guess he's not a saint. What's he's a he's a mensch, you know? <laughs> and he'd come in. He's in San Luis Obispo, which is Saint Louis Obispo, so we'll call him a saint. <laughs> um, and uh, and unfortunately, like I couldn't have him there on my right hand when I was like, I've got a hankering to smell this wine. Twenty four seven. And so it's like he he lives forty five minutes away. He's got you know a wife and. And way more kids needed back in 2011. Right. And I think he had one or two at the time. Now he has four or five. Four, I think. Anyway, um, and it was just like, um, it was just hard. You know, it's hard when you, I'm someone who wants to know now. I might call and be like, when can you come? Can you, can you come today? And like, uh, maybe next week or something, you know? <laughs> it's like, and then so he'd come and pull the sample. We'd do the analysis, but he's not going to hang around for eight hours to figure that out, right? So when can we do the work on it? Oh, maybe like next week or two weeks from now. It's like, it's that's the biggest challenge for me is having to like patience. I, yeah, patience. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if it's patience. It's just well, it's if a, I it's see a, an issue, I want to deal with it. And the thing, because thing, it, it's chemistry. Things can happen quickly. Right. You know, the so. wine. Right. You might be might not be looking at the same product in a week. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Kosher wine is not the same as non-kosher wine. And it's not for any other reason than there's certain rules that you have to follow. Um, I'd say hmm, that's kind of an interesting one. I'd say at a certain price point, kosher wine is not the same as other wines. On the lower end, you mean? No, I think I think actually the like they actually do a really good job. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to push a product, but like. I mean, can I mention products on this? Yeah. No, we're always looking like for I, I tasted, yeah, right. <laughs> I tasted like we did, I did a, um, a uh, side-by-side for five different kosher wines uh, a couple of years ago because we were, we were working with someone to make it and try to make some, some cab. And the $15 Herzog Paso Robles or whatever it is, I think it's Paso Robles Cabernet. Right. That, to me, stands up against... Any other, uh, maybe like you know, twelve to eighteen dollar Cabernet. Right. Solid. That's awesome. Like, totally solid. I think there's this middle range where it's like, 
where wines are like 40 to $80 or something like that, okay. where you can't make enough of them to have a lot of automation. And so like during harvest, you know, it's like, in Israel, it's probably not as bad too, because you know, you like the holidays are shorter. They're only one day as right. opposed to two days. But it's like you have those harvest years where you have Shabbat and then two days of holiday. Right. So your your fermenters are not being touched for three days. That's a big problem. And it happens for a few weeks in a row. So like Right. Yeah, it doesn't happen just once, it happens in cycles of three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like for three weeks in a row you lose like Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Or, or you lose like a harvest day, I guess. If you want yeah. to harvest by a yeah. certain time, you could yeah. get it done. There's actually rules around that, which is really funny. Like I, I I've, I've now now that uh, I've been making kosher wine for a few years, I know all the all the ways that you can not really break the rules, but you can bend them. Uh-huh. You know, it's wow. it's really hilarious. You know, <laughs> it's like well, technically, if you don't take possession of the grapes, if they still belong to somebody else, then they can pick them on Saturday, and then uh-huh. you buy them on Monday <laughs> or, or on okay. Sunday. You know, it's like. Oh wow, that's really interesting, and it's perfectly like kosher. <laughs> Legit, yeah, yeah. I have no idea about that stuff. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of really interesting rules. Um, so I don't know. It's like anything Jewish, man. Like there's a, there's a little wiggle room. <laughs> Let's talk to the rabbi. See what's up. That's funny. Yeah, the rules of kashrut, man. It's like a, I, it's for a non Sabbath hearing Jew. Like I said, I know a lot of rules that a lot of people don't know. You know? Yeah, I so. mean, like, when we were tasting earlier, I'm like, you know, I was just like, all these, like, you're spouting all these rules off and stuff like that. I'm like, dude, I got no idea. Like, I'll just yeah. take your word for it. Right. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty interesting. So what pushed you through the frustration of the process just to keep it going? Well, my dad, he, my dad wanted me to make kosher wine. And I was like, I, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. He's done a lot for me. <laughs> 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 and he's not even, he's not, he's not. He's he's conservative, but he's not he's not orthodox, so you know he'll eat a, he'll eat fish at a non kosher mm-hmm. restaurant or something you know, but um, uh, but he likes he he's a huge supporter of of more religious communities than than he is and um, and it was important it was something that he he wanted me to do and I was happy to do it. It was important know? to him, so it was important yeah. to you. And, yeah. That's terrific. And I like challenges. You know, every now and again, I'm like, oh, let me try something really difficult. And I was like, and then I didn't realize what challenging was until I decided to make wine with a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but it's it's nice. I mean, I've put on tefillin more times in the past seven years than I did for probably 20 years. He always so. he always gets you when he comes Brings, in. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you want to put on tefillin? like... That's of the, course. That's the price. Of course. Time. I'm like running around, sweating, like <laughs> doing like a million things. He comes down for a punch down. Hey, you want a phone to fill in? I'm like, and you know, was, at first I was like, I don't have time for this, you know? And then, you know, you realize like, maybe I should start to keep Shabbat because then at least I'd get a day off. <laughs> it's it's nice to just stop, you know, um, for, for a moment, you know? That's crazy. Um but uh, I've got you know just too many balls in the air to even think about that, and and other issues as a philosophical winemaker. I know? hear that. Yeah, <laughs> I totally get that. So yeah. he's not coming down all the time, but you have a, a little bit of other help these days too. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, uh, so uh, yeah, back in 2011, we made our first wine, and in 2012, we so we'd already done one with Chaim, and um, the Weiss brothers. They were randomly. I don't remember where I saw them. 
and uh, I had met them earlier. They had been making wine, the same winery that I make wine. Right. Um, and like, let's say seven, 2007 or eight. So I'd seen them and uh, they were like, oh, we're looking for a place to make wine. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, have you checked it out? I was actively looking for people to help me pay for my equipment. So like, who, right. who, who wants to process with my equipment? And I was like, oh, by the way, like I'm making kosher wine. They're like, what? <laughs> like you're making kosher wine on the Central Coast? I was like, yeah, yeah. And um, so they were stoked. So they started making wine in the same building that I'm making wine. There's 25 wineries of which two make kosher wine. And um, uh, yeah, it just worked out. So so since they're here, they provide a lot of help and services and, you know, um, pretty great. Yeah. So it's been a number of years already. Yeah, yeah, they've been here since 2012, I think. So they've been here six years. That's oh. terrific. So you yeah. guys are pioneering the Central Coast together? Yeah, maybe. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a, more than a few kosher wineries we do in Central Coast. I mean, this, you know. Yeah. Say so if, if Paso is part of the Central Coast, then there's, you know. It's a beautiful region. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it is, it is nice. That's terrific. Um, this is awesome. Cool. Thanks a lot. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, wow. So you're going to cut me the check for this now or later? How's that work? Uh, it's three <laughs> days, right? Yeah, 30-minute yeah, conversation. Checks in the mail, yeah, right. But seriously, the point here, uh, that was an amazing conversation. And as you can tell, Josh and I have a good time together. Uh, that was not even after having any wine this time. But listen to this one again especially the second half where we really get into his ideas about learning how to taste and associated theory. It's really terrific information and great context for developing our palates beyond our comfort zone and being objective about wine. And also um, his thoughts about the wine business, I think are really valuable for anyone considering getting into it and also anyone who's already in it, keeping that terrific mentality. So go ahead and subscribe, send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, or send me an email, andrew at koshersom.com. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.